This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. NPR wants to hear from you, the listener. How can we improve your experience? What are we doing well? What can we do better? Head to npr.nz and click on the listener survey button to be taken to a short series of questions that will help us do better. You'll also go in the draw to win a $50 Cafe Royale voucher. That's npr.nz or find the link on our Facebook page. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters. Lovely to have your company here on Manawatu People's Radio or wherever all good podcasts are found. Going to have a little bit of a look at some of the news at the moment, starting with this from interest.co.nz, that the ANZ expects the one-year fixed mortgage rates to bottom out at 1.75% in April, but says their impact on the housing market could be muted. So less than 2%, that's incredible. April's not too far away. It's If you think about it, it's probably less than six months. The ASB's bank's economists have warned that the current strength of the housing market might not last, even though the mortgage interest rates are likely to fall further, the article says. ANZ's latest New Zealand Property Focus report notes that the housing market has been surprisingly strong over the usually quieter winter months, supported by lower mortgage rates, wage subsidies and pent-up demand. And there certainly is the feeling that the wage subsidies in particular have been keeping things going along quite nicely, but it's warning that factors such as weak migration, the economy coming off fiscal life support, so to speak, and a generally weaker economy could take longer to dampen the market. So the report said that short-term fixed mortgage rates could dip below 2% next year, and further declines in mortgage rates will help shore up the housing market spending and confidence. But it's set to go up against a range of dampening factors that are likely to become more evident by the end of the year. So we're going to see they're suggesting that the market might slow a bit. Now just here in the Manawatu, Wanganui region, can't seem too many signs of slowing as there's a lot going on here indeed. This article from Radio New Zealand says that Labour promised big on housing and has it delivered. The Labour Party promised to reduce homelessness boost state housing stock and build thousands of homes in its first term. But with a record high waitlist for social housing and the creation of just under 600 of its 100,000 Kiwi built houses, how far has it, has it got really with some of its major policies? Now just to put that into a percentage, if the, you were doing an examination, let's think back to your school days, and the target was 100%. What percentage of Kiwi-built houses has Labour managed to do? 0.6. So in other words, they have failed by 99.4% on their target thus far. So it's interesting that uh, we've still got people out there who are homeless. A lot of them are being housed in uh, motels, paid for by the government. Uh, And after taking power, Labour committed an initial $100 million to tackle homelessness. But since then, the wait list for social housing has ballooned to nearly 20,000 people. A further $300 million in new funding was committed to tackle homelessness this year, but it still seems that there's uh, a lot of difficulty as um, the June figures 
show that the current government has built roughly 3,000 state houses and created 1,400 short-term accommodation places and just under 3,000 state houses are being built. So this is in response to the 20,000 people on the wait list for social housing. So it's interesting uh, how this is going to be tackled by some of the parties uh, coming up to the election. The National Party leader and former housing spokesperson Judith Collins said the growing wait list was an indictment of the government's response to housing. Although she's admitted not enough state housing was built during Nationals nine years, she says we'll continue to build them, we'll continue to work with community housing providers to build them, she said. We need to get some really good housing started fast. It's a big issue. I love housing and I love housing people. But Housing Minister Megan Wood said Labour was fixing the problem. She says the previous government ended up with 1,500 houses fewer than they started with. So to turn that tanker around, she says, to be actually building 4,000 state houses in our first term in government has been a real achievement. And you may, those of you who listen to me on this show regularly will remember that when Kiwi Build was first announced, I thought it was the wrong way of doing things, that they really should just be concentrating on building state houses. Because the Labour Party's flagship housing policy was the ambitious $2 billion Kiwi Build scheme. That was the one that was the, the 100,000 houses within 10 years to ease pressure for those struggling to find shelter. And the housing minister at the time, Phil Twyford, was adamant it would ease affordability. And then Woods, um, Megan Woods came in and took over from Phil Twyford. She says, it isn't delivering the numbers we need at the pace that we wanted and too many of the homes it has built have been in the wrong place in the wrong area. You may recall that they went through a reset and the 100,000 houses target was scrapped. And she says, instead, we will build as many, focus on building as many homes as we can as fast as we can. And since 2018, just under 600 Kiwi build houses have been built and another 977 are under construction. And the government has also helped the private market build just over 1,400 affordable houses. Judith Collins has been scathing about Kiwi Build from the start. She says, We're not going to promise the earth like Kiwi Build, spend $2 billion on setting up a government department and building 500 houses. But Megan Woods defended the programme. She says, What I see is over 600 sales, over 600 houses delivered, over 1,000 under construction, construction, and more in the pipeline. Housing is a difficult one and uh, the National Party is imminently going to release its policy on housing. Uh, By the time you listen to the show, they may have already done so, but it's really a a difficult uh, factor indeed. And in fact, there was a meeting held uh, on September the 30th here in Palmerston North uh, with the MPs about how they would tackle the city's housing problem. And it gave an example of a few tenants who, who spoke at this event, which was co-hosted by NPR, about the experiences that they'd had and the fear that they have about complaining when they're living in properties that are, they feel are substandard and the fear of complaining, thinking that uh, they would have been black, tenants maybe blacklisted and unable to find a flat again. Now, in the government's changes that uh, have that are taking place in February of next year, it's important to remember that one of the changes is that under the tenancy tribunal hearings, if you are successful in a hearing, so in other words, if a tenant um, complains about uh, the standard of the property, goes to tenancy tribunal and gets things put right, their name is suppressed. And so the the comments that were made at 
this meeting that was held uh, September 30th was that they might get blacklisted or might have trouble if they complain finding a rental property. So what's happened with the changes that are coming in in February is that there is no blacklist. That's uh, I'm not sure what they're referring to there. But certainly their details, if they took a, a landlord to court and won, would be suppressed. And so if someone was doing a search of tenancy tribunal court rulings, in other words, if a landlord was doing a search, they wouldn't know or wouldn't be able to find uh, that particular tenant as being someone who had complained against a landlord, which is a good thing, of course. Um, so that, that's... Um, Something that these that w- was bandied around was the idea of being blacklisted, etc. Another thing that um, tenants worry about, or worried about at least in this meeting, was that if they complain, they might be given notice that they have to move out. Uh, now, just to put that one to bed, uh, again in February of next year, that the the law changes where landlords were able to give uh, no or able to end tenancies for no reason, given that they could give either a 90-day notice or let a fixed-term tenancy end at the end of the time that it was um, signed up for in the contract. So tenants have been scared about, look, if we stand up for our rights and for healthier housing or complain against the landlord, they'll boot us out. That will be a thing of the past from February of next year. Now this article for folks, uh, Manotu Wanganui, is one of... Uh, it says that Manawatu Wanganui is one of the Provincial Growth Fund's biggest winners. This was in the Manawatu Standard. It says that Manawatu Wanganui is one of the biggest winners from the Provincial Growth Fund as hundreds of millions of dollars pour into the region. Nearly $153 million from the $3 billion fund, which was a New Zealand First promise introduced by the Labour-led government, has been allocated to projects in Manawatu Wanganui, the fourth highest share in New Zealand. And government figures, this is quite interesting, show the scheme has created or will create 1,070 jobs in the region. And only Bay of Plenty and Northland have had more jobs created since the fund's inception. So in Manawatu Wanganui, there are 401 people working on projects supported by the fund. There's 669 jobs from completed projects and another 497 expected to be created by upcoming projects. And this means that people will also be moving into the area, which is, uh, again, putting a bit of a strain on on the housing supply. However, Labor has announced that it would wind up the fund if it's returned to power in the election, which is a concern. And they say a new $200 million regional strategic partnership fund would replace it. The new fund would mainly focus on creating regional economic development plans to direct future government investment. So they're going from a $3 billion fund to a $200 million Strategic Partnership Fund. Central Economic Development Agency Chief Executive Linda Stewart said Manawatu Wanganui would reap the benefit of the Provincial Growth Fund investment for years. The fund money for the region includes the $40 million towards the initial stages of Kiwi Rail's planned freight yard between Palmerston North and Bunnythorpe. Horizons Regional Council Staff Liaison for Accelerate 25 Nick Pete said besides major infrastructure such as the freight centre and the $12.5 million Wanganui port revitalisation, the fund's investment in people was its biggest plus. Projects such as the National Driver Training Centre and Fielding and the Central Region Major Project Skills Hub have received $17.7 million of fund money. And these projects enabled people to get better jobs or into employment, which meant they would more likely spend more in the local economy. 
It also helped ensure that there were enough qualified people to meet the demand for skilled workers generated by an ongoing $1.5 billion development boom in the Manawatu, and that's an incredible amount of money that's being spent here over the next 10 or so years. So that's great that uh, all of those things are happening. It's good if you own property here, of course, as the prices keep going up through supply and demand. Not so good if you're renting, as rents will probably do the same. And this has been something I've talked about on other shows with regards to uh, the percentages that things are going up. Manawatu Wanganui house prices in the last 12 months went up a little over 17%, and in the 12 months before that, a little over 17%. So uh, big ch- big changes there as people move into and flood into the area for jobs and so forth. Now this article, having a slight change of direction here, we're going to talk about renting for a moment. And as soon as I read this article, I knew what the, uh, the headline, I should say, I knew what the outcome would be. So here's the headline. Invercargill couple stopped paying rent to protest. And this is something which I've come across in my many years of property management, that sometimes tenants who feel like they're having a rough go of things will hold back paying rent until something is, for example, fixed or repaired. So let's look at this story, and there's only one way that things generally go if you stop paying rent, and I think we all know what that is. But let's have a look. An invocable couple who stopped paying rent because they believed their rental property was substandard have now been evicted. Tamara Clark's tenancy for the Appleby House was terminated at a tenancy tribunal hearing in Invercargo on September 21 because of rent arrears. Clark, her partner Lyndon Winslow, their children and pets had to be out of the property by September the 29th. At the hearing, Winslow said he just wanted to have his piece heard relating to a raft of issues with the property, including leaks and black mould. Tribunal adjudicator Shelley Munro noted the concerns but said without him submitting any evidence she was unable to deal with those matters. And this was at a re-hearing after the couple failed to attend the previous hearing on August 10. So Munro ordered the couple to pay $3,807.14 in rent arrears. So it's interesting. So let's break this down a little bit. So if you're in a rental property, one of the fundamental rules is that you must pay your rent. If your property is substandard, there are other mechanisms for resolving that. So rather than taking things into your own hands and stopping paying rent, apply at the Tenancy Tribunal to have these things resolved or give notice to the landlord to resolve them uh, or even go to court to get um, compensation or exemplary damages. But whatever you do, don't stop paying rent as a tenant uh, in protest against something that the landlord is doing because the law is very clear on paying rent and it gives that landlord an opportunity to move you on. So there was a bit of a debate uh, in that court case about what the condition of the property was like and as the adjudicator mentioned, there was no evidence, they they took no evidence, um, the tenants, to the court. So she couldn't rule on what is um, not before her, otherwise it can be a case of he said, she said, if, if you excuse the terminology, we have two groups um, deciding uh, or talking about um, what what had happened and what hadn't, but really evidence is the matter there. So those tenants actually got moved on and evicted because of the non-payment of rent. Uh, that's a sad situation. They could probably reapply um, with grievances and provide evidence on the property with regards what it was really like.
And that leads me on to another article here, which is from the spinoff.co.nz, which says, what property managers think of the cold, damp homes they look after. So the quest for healthy rentals is often portrayed as a battle between sickly tenants and their merciless landlords. But where do the middlemen and women sit on the issue? So the article says it's not hard to view New Zealand's quest for livable rental housing as an intense politically charged feud on one side of the renters, the NGOs and the government, pushing for warm, dry homes. And on the other are wealthy landlords and property owners seemingly ever eager to avoid upgrades in order to keep profit margins as high as possible. In fact, earlier this month, Andrew King of the Property Investors Federation urged landlords to delay installing heat pumps until after the election when a potential national government would scrap the requirements and make heat pumps and insulation optional. And King's comments were criticised by many, including the NZ Green Building Council, the Real Estate Institute, and while the Labour Party called them deeply disappointing. And once again, it appeared that an elite group of asset holders were attempting to neglect their dilapidated houses, condemning the hapless tenants to free market mechanisms and the toxic black mould slowly creeping up their kitchen walls. And of course, a landlords versus tenants binary is far too crude to fully capture the complexities of the issue, nor the links most landlords are going to comply. But what about the property management companies, the businesses taking care of properties on behalf of landlords and presumably acting in their interests? Whose side are they on? So on Monday, um, last Monday, Barfoot and Thompson made headlines when the director, Kerry Barfoot, joined the Asthma and Respiratory Foundation New Zealand, the Hutt Valley District Health Board, Community Housing Aotearoa, NZ Green Building Council and university researchers to sign a letter calling on National to scrap its plans to overturn the Healthy Homes Standard. She says, we don't agree with everything in the healthy homes legislation, but people who can't afford houses should be able to live in at least warm, dry uh, and healthy homes, Barfoot told staff. I don't know why people have a problem with that, particularly if they can afford to have a second home. Some took umbrage with the letter with a landlord advocacy group Stop the War on Tenancies calling for a Barfoot boycott. Mike Butler, the spokesperson, said, I would be outraged if a property manager I employed was lobbying a political party to increase my compliance costs for no sound reason and I would take my business elsewhere. And while it might seem seen as a risky business move to antagonise already disgruntled landlords, the people that employ you to look after your properties, Barfoot said, usually have substandard homes, and the landlords that permit them are unwelcome costs that bring down the value of the housing portfolio. So most property managers would agree with this next statement, which is that we're not very tolerant of slum landlords, uh, Barfoot told the spin-off. The people who refuse to put insulation in or refuse to do repairs, we really don't want them to be associated with us. So it's interesting that uh, the uh, David Faulkner, they quote, who's uh, the director of the property management consulting firm Real IQ, he agreed that the claim that landlords are being forced to raise rents or sell their properties because of increased costs simply doesn't stack up. He said the pushback usually comes from veteran landlords who had gotten away with leasing substandard houses for years. All that huff and puff about the cost of upgrades, that's rubbish. Investors are queuing up to buy property, which we're certainly finding here in Manawatu, Wanganui. So David Faulkner says, for every landlord that whinges about extra costs, fine, go, because they're going to have other investors who will replace them, and I suspect that they may be more socially aware about the responsibilities of tenants. So really, the healthy homes ultimately makes a big difference to the quality of life for a number of tenants, and that's got to be a good thing. 
So we'll just have a break now, play a little bit of music here uh, for you. We've got Sole Mio, and that's Amore, New Zealand music. In Napoli, Supply that some When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's some Bells will ring, ting-a-ling-a-ling, ting-a-ling-a-ling, and you'll sing Vita Bella. Hearts will play tibi-tibi-te, tibi-tibi-te, like a guitarantella. When the stars make you drool Just like a pasta fazool That's amore When you dance down the street With the cloud at your feet You're in love When you walk in a dream But you know you're not dreaming Signore Scusa me, but you see back in old Napoli that's a morning. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's a morning. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's a morning. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, ting-a-ling-a-ling And you sing Vita Bella Hearts who play Tibi-tibi-te, tibi-tibi-te Like a guitar and tenda When the stars make you drool Just like a pasta fazool That's amore That's amore When you dance down the street With the cloud at your feet You're in love When you walk in a dream But you know you're not dreaming Signore Scusa me But you see back in old Napoli That's amore That's amore And you're back here on Property Matters at npr.nz, Manawatu People's Radio. Te reo irirangi o nga tangata o Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson. It's lovely having your company. Just one final story here just before we finish the Property Matters show. And this one from the New Zealand Herald. Unbelievable story, except that it's true. So let's have a look at this. Up in smoke, the headline says, Cannabis growing renters set million dollar rental on fire. So an Auckland landlord has been left with a $400,000 repair bill after their million-dollar rentals occupants ran a cannabis-growing operation that sparked a major fire. Yet the tenants will now contribute just $800 to directly help with the insurance repair costs a recent tenancy tribunal decision showed. So how does that work out? Well, the, the landlord's building insurance will pay for that $400,000 repair bill. The tenants are responsible for the excess 
and the insurance company will chase those tenants down and get that money back. But the landlord doesn't have to worry as their insurance will pay out. However, the tenants will have to fork out another $22,000 to cover unpaid rent and other minor expenses incurred by the property owner. So, so I'm, uh, you're going to have to excuse the pronunciation here. There's some foreign names. So I'll see how it goes. The tenant, Hep Town Lu, told the Tenancy Tribunal he didn't know the home was being used to grow cannabis because he hadn't been living there. Instead, he had been illegally subletting it to a friend. That ultimately led to the Flatbush home, which is a $1.1 million council valuation, catching a light on November 30th last year. The fire badly damaged one of the rental's bedrooms as well as its roof cavity, bathroom and hallway. Smoke, soot and heat damage scarred the rest of the property. So fire crews rushing to put out the flames also quickly discovered something else. Two of the rental's rooms had been set up as cannabis growing operations with added lighting and ventilation equipment installed, police, fire and emergency confirmed. Pretty, uh, pretty amazing stuff. You'd certainly want to make sure you've got some uh, oxygen tanks uh, breathing that in. Uh, so that meant as a... How this came about was Lou says he was unable to afford the tenancy on his own, so as a result, on July the 9th, he moved out and sublet the property. Mr Lou said he sublet the property to help a friend who had unknowingly put him in the situation, adjudicator Edison said. He says he did not know cannabis was being grown at the property or know that the subtenants were involved with drugs. So Lou told the hearing he would call round to the property to collect rent, which incidentally Lou set at a higher rate than what he paid the landlord from the subtenants, but would not go inside. He said he only went inside the rental during an inspection last October with the property managers Barfoot and Thompson because his friend had travelled to Vietnam and asked him to be there. And while the adjudicator Edison accepted that Barfoot and Thompson inspection report showed there was no sign of a drug operation running in the house at the time of the October inspection. However, Edison said Lou and Tai remained responsible for what happened at the property. Lou had never sought to remove Ty's name from the tenancy agreement nor asked permission to sublet the rental. So the purpose of requiring tenants to obtain the landlord's permission before assigning, subletting or parting with possession is to enable the landlord to regulate who lives in the property. This protects the landlord from having the premises used in an inappropriate way or by an undesirable occupier. But in this case, the adjudicator says the landlord was deprived of that opportunity. And as I mentioned, because the owner had insurance to cover the estimated 400000 worth of damage, Edison ordered those tenants to pay $800 contribution towards the repair. But there were six months remaining on the fixed-term lease, so Edison also ordered that Lou and Ty pay the $21,188 in unpaid rent. Lou claimed it was unfair to ask him to pay the rent because the rental owner's insurer had already paid out $20,000 in lost rental income. However, Edison said it was a general principle that insurance payouts did not reduce a tenant's liability to pay rent. So interesting that owners going, because they had such good insurance, they're going to end up with the $21,000 from the tenants, uh, the $20,000 from the insurance company, and the excess paid on the insurance. So while it's a heck of a hassle, because they had very good insurance, they're going to be not at all out of pocket for the experience, provided the house can be rebuilt um, during that time that was left on the fixed term. So interesting there. And then it comes back also to the strength of the the insurance policy as to what happens with rent payments after that. 
that's all we've got time for this week. And that was just a cautionary tale ahead of uh, cannabis reform potential under <laughs> New Zealand law. And uh, goodness gracious, let's, we'll just have to wait and see what happens there. But this has been Greg Watson. You've been listening to Property Matters. It's been wonderful having your company. And I look forward to you tuning in next time here on NPR, where all podcasts are found. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.